Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Our speaker this morning should be familiar to each of us. Um, Larry and Wanda were part of the group that helped to plant the assembly in 2006. And uh, we enjoy every time he's able to come back since we've been over to the East Coast, now heading to the tundra up north. <laughs> So uh, we're going to turn the remainder of our Bible stretch time over to Larry Price. <laughs> What's wrong with this picture? <laughs> Just, uh, it's been a while. Tell me again what time I'm supposed to stop. <laughs> Ten, after. Ten after. Thank you. Uh, Tyler, are you 22? 21? 20? 19. I like to start that way a little, you know. Uh, yeah, but I give you know, I want to say, are you 17? I mean, you know, you got to go higher before you come down. But anyway, that's even interesting because, you know, today is September 11th, and there's a whole generation that's been born since 2001, uh, which is just an interesting thing to think about that... Um, a lot of this generation perhaps even wonder when we talk about 9-11, you know, what went on and how many know and, and so on. Just an interesting thing to think about. It's not the subject of our message today. Uh, we're going to turn back to 1 Samuel and um, chapter 21. First Samuel chapter 21. It is good to see the assembly going on and uh, maintaining and holding forth in this place. That's relevant in a large sense to what we will be looking at today, although what we look at this morning will probably be, well, will definitely be applicable uh, to our individual lives. Many times the same things can be said about our collective testimony as well. So, 1 Samuel 20, chapter 21, in verse 1, Then came David to Nob, to Ahimelech, the priest. And Ahimelech was afraid at the meeting of David, and said unto him, Why art thou alone, and no man with thee? And David said unto Ahimelech, the priest, The king hath commanded me a business, and hath said unto me, Let no man know anything of the business whereabout I send thee. And what I have commanded thee, and I have appointed my servants to such and such a place. Now therefore, what is under thine hand? Give me five loaves of bread in my hand, or what there is present. And the priest answered David and said, There is no common bread under mine hand, but there is hallowed bread, if the young men have kept themselves at least from women. And David answered the priest and said unto him, Of a truth, women have been kept from us about these three days since I came out, and the vessels of the young men are holy, and the bread is in a manner common, Yea, though it were sanctified this day in the vessel. So the priest gave him hallowed bread, for there was no bread there but the showbread that was taken from before the Lord, to put hot bread in the day when it was taken away. And so uh, we have the incidents of David, who's a king, who's, well, he's a king, at least has been privately anointed to be the king, has not yet publicly been recognized as the king, and so he's on the run. 
And he's running because Saul is after him and seeking to kill him. Whenever I think of this account of Scripture, I think of my friend Randy Amos, who's with the Lord now, and uh, something that happened in the life of Randy that really was characteristic of Randy. So Charlie and I were just briefly chatting about folks that were raised in the assembly, New Testament practicing fellowships, and those that weren't. Of course, I'm the latter. Randy was the former. And Randy could quote scripture probably better than anybody I've ever met in my life because Randy didn't just quote, you know, John 3.16 and Romans 5.8. I mean, in Leviticus 24.36, whatever. I mean, he could just quote like a machine. But Randy always felt like in his way of his own consciousness of his walk with the Lord that everything he did had to be justified by Scripture. Everything. So one day Randy was in Philadelphia downtown years ago and something happened in the traffic and whoever was in the car behind him got out with a chain like a logging chain, and took the chain and hit the back of Randy's car with it. And Randy said, here I was sitting at the red light. And I said, what would you do? He said, I ran a red light. I said, Randy, you broke the law. I ate the showbread, brother. <laughs> he already had that whole thing reasoned out in his mind, you see. How can I justify this? Yes, it was a law. I broke the law. Somebody's trying to kill me. I ate the showbread, brother. <laughs> and so whenever I read this passage, I think of that. Um, but that's really not the gist of the message today either. It's just I can't help but think of that whenever I go to this passage. So you may remember that in Matthew's gospel, uh, in my mind, uh, as I approach Scripture, Matthew is one of the most, uh, I want to say carefully laid out. But what I mean by that is, in his apparent presentation to the Jewish people, I would call Matthew's gospel one of the most dispensational of the gospels. And, and you can see clearly marked turning points in that gospel. And one of the major turning points comes in chapter 12, which is the chapter that precedes chapter 13. Chapter 13, he begins to expound the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and the character that the kingdom will take on during this time of the inner advent period from the coming of the Lord to his return. So just prior to that in chapter 12, towards the end of the chapter, you have the Lord there uh, telling the Pharisees that all manner of sins will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, you know, that, that can never be forgiven. And he says that in the context of them accusing him of doing the works that he did by Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, and so on. In the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, so Matthew chapter 12 is a pivotal chapter in Matthew's gospel. And you can see he presents himself to the nation, and the nation rejects him, rejects him, rejects him, until that critical point to where they are guilty of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and then ultimately on the cross what takes place with the nation. But it is in that chapter at the beginning when he and his disciples are walking through the fields and plucking the grains of wheat there, as it says, the corn. And uh, it's on the Sabbath day. And he's confronted by the Pharisees. And when the Lord 
justifies his actions, if you will, about what he was doing, he refers to this very passage. Did you not read what David did when he took that bread which had been hollowed, the show bread, and which was supposed to be for the priest, and so on? And he quotes from this very passage. Now, I believe that the Lord did that not only to justify why he was doing, but I believe that he also intended to trigger in the minds of those Pharisees and his accusers and the crowds as well the historical event to which he was referring in the life of David. That in the bigger picture, there was one who was an anointed one. And you remember that the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. There was one who was anointed, but wasn't recognized by much of the nation, and had not yet been publicly crowned. And he was rejected, and he was running uh, because they were trying to kill him, and hiding in the mountains, and doing all sorts of interesting and odd things, such as you get at the end of chapter 21, when David went before Achish, the king of Gath. Now, this whole thing is interesting at another level. The scriptures that way, as I know you all know, that there are various levels to which we can approach it by means of application. And it's not just a flat linear thing, which is part of the beauty of the word of God, how he's constructed it. But when you begin to see in this chapter that here's David, he goes before Ahimelech, and he says, is there any sword here? Is there any weapon? And the priest says, well, the only thing here is the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. You know, Goliath of Gath. And David fled for fear of Saul. You want to say, wait a minute, David, where'd that sword come from? (laughs) You remember how God delivered you in the valley of Elah from Goliath? You got his sword in your hand. How'd that happen? Now you're afraid of Saul? I'm not faulting David. I mean, I would have probably been on the run as well, you know, if Saul's after me. But it's interesting, isn't it? And then he goes to Achish, and uh, the servants of Achish said, Isn't this David, the king of the land? Didn't they sing to one another? Saul has slain his thousands, David is tens of thousands. And then David was afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. And he changed his behavior, and he began to make himself like he was insane, and he scrabbled on the wall with his hands and his drool coming down his face and spit coming down on his beard and looking like a madman. And you want to say, wait, this is the king? Now, if we had the time, which we won't take the time this morning, you begin to transpose that into the key of the New Testament and you see another king with spittle running down his beard. And you might say to yourself, well, what kind of madness is this, that he, the very king of kings, would be crucified, not now with his own spittle coming down his beard, but the spittle of those very creatures that he created, now allowing himself to be crucified and laying down his life. That's part of the story, but it's kind of a different aspect of it. But anyway, um, that's where we find David. And then the very next thing that happens is David departed from thence and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. It's chapter 22. 
And then his brethren and all his father's house heard it. They went down thither to him. And everyone that, had, that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Now, this was a very significant event as well, because now what you have, for the first time, um, David, who's been on the run, becomes a captain of this guerrilla band of soldiers, if you will. So you're set up now with this interesting uh, experience in the history of the nation of Israel. Undoubtedly, later when people read this, they would reflect upon the fact that at this time in Israel's history, there were two kings. Because that was an absolutely unique situation, wasn't it? It wasn't unique after Solomon in the sense of when the kingdom split into the north and the south. But now in the United Kingdom, there were two kings. One king, in fact, Saul, had been publicly anointed to be the king of Israel and publicly acclaimed by the Lord and Samuel the prophet, to be the king of the nation. David had been privately anointed in a smaller family ceremony, if you will, by Samuel. But his anointing was not public. And you would have had to made a decision if you were among the Israelites of that day as to which one you would pledge your loyalty. Think about that. Would it be the one who was hounded and running and changing his behavior and hiding in a cave and not publicly recognized as king? Or would it be Saul, the one whom by this time God had functionally rejected from furthering his kingdom or his monarchy or his dynasty, but was still the recognized anointed of the Lord. David himself recognized it, didn't he? At least two times we have the account when David had him dead to rights. And his own would become general and men said, you don't even have to do it, let me do it. Nope, I'm not put forth my hand and touch the Lord's anointed. David wouldn't take it into his own hand. So imagine you're an Israelite and you had to make the choice which one of these was the right king. Which one to follow. Now it's easy to say, isn't it? Because we know the story. Well, if I'd have been there, I would have followed David. I'd have been like those distressed and debtors and discontent, you know, malcontent ones that gathered with him in the cave, and I would have been loyal to David. Easy to say that. Sometimes, have you ever thought to yourself, which crowd would you have been among if you'd have been there at Calvary? Easy to think now that you know the Lord, oh, I would have never been among those who used sarcasm and ridiculed him and cast their teeth on him and mocked him and his pain and the cross and all. Easy to think that. I don't know. I'm not sure where I would have found myself. Perhaps had I been one of those like Mary or one of those others that he had delivered in some kind of way, 
I might say I'd follow him. But his own disciples who were closest to him all fled, didn't they? Smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And they were. They fled. Interesting, isn't it? You know, um, again, Charlie, we were talking. So I wasn't raised in a Christian home, but uh, being raised in the South, um, because back then North Florida was kind of like South Georgia, and it was more Southern than whatever else it was. But um, anyway, um, I was sent to Sunday school as a little boy, and I learned certain truths, you know, uh, in Sunday school on the back of a funeral fan or whatever else you had, you know, a picture of Jesus and Jesus died on the cross and he was buried, he rose again the third day, so on and so on. Um, but I remember when I got a little bit older, it's funny how you look back at things you thought about. And I had this thought, I don't know why I thought it, but I just did. I thought to myself, I wonder why when Jesus rose from the dead, He didn't just walk down the streets of Jerusalem and say, See, I told you. Why didn't he show himself to his enemies? Why didn't he say, You see what I said was going to happen, happen. And look, this is who I am. But he didn't do that. Showed himself alive to his followers. 500 at once, it says, and other witnesses, enough to authenticate the reality of the resurrection for 40 days to his disciples, appearing and disappearing and so on. But the last view the world had of him was of a man crucified in apparent weakness, dying a criminal's shameful death on the cross. And the last view that Israel had of him as a nation was of that man who was cursed because he was hanging on a tree and cursed as everyone that hangeth on a tree. It's interesting, isn't it? And so in a sense, what that does is it shuts us up to faith. Not faith in the sense of, like the little Sunday school girl gave the description, you know, faith is believing what ain't so. That's not faith. (laughs) Faith is taking God at His word. Not Believing because we've seen in the very words of the Savior himself who stood on this planet and said, blessed are those who who haven't seen. Thomas, you've seen. But blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. And you and I who are believers in Christ, we follow a king who is rejected and who has not yet been publicly Uh, manifest as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If Jesus were to walk down the streets of this city here today in all His resplendent glory, well, people would bow one way or another, wouldn't they? That's not what He's chosen to do. And so the choice has to be made. I I thought of this in connection with one of the hymns we sometimes sing Uh, about the crowning day. Our Lord is now rejected and by the world disowned, by the many still neglected, and by the few enthroned. And that's the world we live in, isn't it, as believers? He has been rejected by the world, disowned, and by the many neglected, but the few 
have enthroned him. And that's true of us who are believers following that one. It's interesting to think back into the history of the nation to say that here God had presented them with their own history to say, Israel, at one time you had a king who was by and large rejected and wasn't publicly proclaimed as a king. He was the rightful anointed one, but it was not yet manifested. And you had another king who had been publicly anointed, but had been by God rejected. And again, which one would you have followed? I'm not sure what influenced some people's decisions. But it is interesting to see that there were those who did recognize in David that this was God's rightful king. And we turn fast forward to a couple of chapters to chapter 25 to the remarkable story of the woman Abigail and her husband Nabal. And you remember as David uh, came to Carmel and uh, met there with Nabal and asked for a few provisions for his men and so on, that basically in verse 10, you see Nabal's attitude, who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? There's a lot of runaway slaves, you know, all over the place claiming this or that. Well, it makes him any different, you see. I take my bread and my water and my flesh that I've killed and give it to them and all. And and David was furious, told the men, go get your swords. (laughs) We'll show him. And then along came Abigail and assuaged David's anger and reasoned with him. And David said, you know, while we were in the fields, we took care of the people who were out there watching the sheep. And we took care of the flocks and we didn't steal. We didn't take anything that wasn't ours. And Abigail made haste. Her attitude was totally different. It's remarkable. I mean, it's easy enough It's difficult enough to think of it in the context of where we live today, but imagine in this, well, we're not allowed to say that Oriental setting anymore, but that uh, Eastern setting as it was in that day and the relationship of husband and wife and what it would have been. And for Abigail to now say, in spite of what my husband says, I recognize in David not only of the good he's done for us, But she eventually comes, and uh, she beseeches him down in in the following verses. Verse 26, the Lord has uh, withheld you from shedding blood, and and, and please, you know, forgive, and and so on. And uh, in verse 30, it will come to pass when the Lord shall have done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning thee, and shall have appointed thee ruler over Israel. How did she know that? How did she recognize that? But she she got it right, didn't she? God has appointed him as the anointed Messiah, in that sense, the ruler over Israel, in spite of what it might appear, you see. She got it when Nabal didn't. And then, perhaps less uh, remarkable in the sense that there's more obvious reason for it, you come to the story of Jonathan. And Jonathan is the heir apparent. He's the firstborn who'll take the throne when Saul's gone. And, and what does Jonathan do? Well, he comes and he, 
well, you, you read about it in chapter uh, 18, that uh, Jonathan made a covenant in verse 3 with David. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was upon him, gave it to David, his garments, his sword, his bow, his girdle. To which Saul began to recognize, what more can this mean? Here's Jonathan, who was, I mean, what man does that? Can you imagine? I mean, you can't turn on the television now if you do turn on the television without things being said about the queen, you know, and the new king and all of that. It's very interesting. The queen, uh, uh, Queen Elizabeth II, had a, a Christian testimony. I mean, we can say that of her. I don't know the woman, obviously, personally, but uh, she had a Christian testimony, didn't she? One of the concerns, interesting, I saw one of the Anglican priests the other day who said, well, we're, we're a little bit concerned because Queen Elizabeth was protector of the faith, the Christian faith, and we're a little concerned that Charles has said he would be protector of the faiths. That was an Anglican priest there who said that. And you can see where his concern was. She was a protector of the Christian faith. He proclaiming perhaps to be protector of the faiths in a very multi... Anyway, um, but can you imagine the new king? You see all the get-up that he's got? I mean, you know, they know how to do it up when it comes to that stuff, don't they? And he's got all the vestments and the armature and everything else. Can you imagine him coming and stripping all of that off? And taking some nobody out of the crowd and saying, I'm not the one who has the right to be the king. I divest myself of all my garments and my sword and my everything. And I give it to, you know, Joe Flanagan out there, you know, (laughs) in the crowd. I mean, it sounds ludicrous, doesn't it? But here's Jonathan and Saul. This is really what begins to infuriate Saul. You find it in chapter 19. And... uh, well, actually, over in chapter, in chapter 20, when Saul's anger, anger is kindled against Jonathan down in verse 30, and uh, Jonathan appeals to his father, what, what wrong has he done? What do you want to kill him for? And it says in verse 33 of chapter 20, Saul cast a javelin at him to smite him, whereby Jonathan knew that it was determined of his father to slay David. And you're thinking, duh, <laughs> guy just threw a spear at you. Pretty sure that that means he wants to kill him. It just infuriated him to think he's given up everything so that David can be recognized as king. It's, it's a very interesting thing. It's purely at a historical and a political level in the nation of Israel. Now, um, let's turn to that passage that Buck read. It was not for naught, Buck, that you read First Chronicles. Never is not when you read the Word of God, but... Uh, we actually are going to go there because this now comes to the time when David is publicly recognized by king. So there had been a private anointing. And now it says in chapter 11 of 1 Chronicles, All Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are thy bone and thy flesh. Now that's a remarkable statement, isn't it? We are thy bone and thy flesh. I don't imagine that those people who still 
hold to the monarchy in the UK, uh, would say to Charles at his um, induction, inauguration, whatever they call it, you know, his ascension to the throne, Charles, we are your bone in your flesh. <laughs> I mean, they might come along and say, we're your loyal servants and subjects here in the kingdom, you see. But your bone in your flesh? What a remarkable thing. So you begin to get a little bit of insight into the character of David and the difference between what his leadership was and how it differed from Saul. So that this man was the rightful recognized king, anointed king of the nation. But the people had a sense of oneness with him. That's a remarkable thing, isn't it? It is a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge in any area of leadership to maintain the, the, the circles of authority that God has established. And yet to not create this sort of us and them, you see. No, no, no. While we've been put in this position of authority or leadership or whatever it may be, we're still one. To the point to the people could say... We are your very bone and flesh. Of course, again, easy to transpose into the key of the New Testament, isn't it, to think of the Lord Jesus and to think of these very words of Ephesians 5 that speak of us as being members of his body and united with him in that unique relationship. But they recognized their oneness with David. They were members of him. And so they were going to be, they were, these were the ones who had been loyal to David during the time of his rejection. And that's one of the keys. They recognized that and honored that he was the key to their victories. They honored his achievements. In time past, when Saul was king, you were the one that led us out and brought in Israel. The Lord God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and shalt be ruler over my people Israel. The feeder of God's people. They they honored his achievements. That's another reason they were drawn to him. And you go back to the cave of Adullam. Here was one king publicly manifested as king, political power, and a man in a cave on the run, rejected, but they were drawn to him. And they recognized his achievements. And undoubtedly, that's what it was that drew Jonathan's heart, wasn't it? You know, Jonathan was quite an accomplished soldier. And you read of that instance in him for the one that's recorded for us of he and his servant and, you know, the Philistine garrison up there and the stronghold and shall we go up or not? And Jonathan said, well, let's see if the Lord's in the thing. I'm paraphrasing, you know. And if they say thus and so, we'll know God's in it. We'll go up. And, you know, we'll take them. And if they don't say it that way, then we'll know God's not in it, you know. And so they went up and Jonathan slew those. Great victory in the nation for Jonathan. He was a soldier. But he recognized something in David different, didn't he? It's not by accident that what we call in 1 Samuel chapter 18 comes right after 1 Samuel chapter 17. 
It is in chapter 18 where Jonathan strips himself of all those things that represented his place and position and prestige and everything else. It's in chapter 17 that Jonathan the soldier recognizes David going down into the valley of Elah, down into that place of death for the love of Israel. And it's an immediate response to that scene to where Jonathan then says, this man, the one who would go down and be willing to give his life for this people, he's the right ruler, isn't he? And no doubt that one of the biggest motivations of us following the Lord in this world that rejects him, because there's only one that went down into the place of death for us. And we gathered together this morning to remember it, didn't we? Uh, Whatever else anybody in the world means to us or whatever else relationship we have, there's only one who would go, not only be willing to go down into the place of death, but that God would demonstrate his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the logic of Romans and Paul to say, perhaps for a righteous man, some might dare to die. (laughs) No, no. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet Sinners Christ died for us. There's the demonstration of love, isn't it? And it's that that draws our hearts to the Lord Jesus. It's that that causes us to say, Lord, in this world that rejects you and people go their own way and they do their own thing and they've got their own rules and they follow whatever they follow. Lord, speaking personally for me now, as much of a failure as I am, As many times as I fumble and don't get it right, Lord, my heart of hearts is I want to be loyal to you during this time when the world rejects you and disowns you and neglects you. Lord, I want to be loyal to you. And you find that loyalty expressed in verse 3 of 1 Chronicles 11. Then came the elders of Israel And David made a covenant with them, and they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. They accepted his covenant and expressed their loyalty by means of a covenant. Now, Billy said that I don't need any introduction here, and so that means I've known you folks for a long while. Um, But you've probably heard me say this before. But as I often say, I don't say things just just because I'm getting old and forget what I've said. That certainly comes into play. I just don't have any new things like that as well as illustrations. And some of them are good, so I use them again and again. But I've often spoken about the fact that in the Christian community, there are certain words that fall into misuse and then disuse. So that we as a group of Christians, you wouldn't commonly finding us using a word like sacrament because of the connotations of what that word means in religious circles. But if you go back to the root of the word in the Latin, the sacramentum was the oath that the Roman soldier took when he pledged his loyalty and allegiance to Rome. 
And so it's easy to see how in the early Christian church that word could be connected with the Lord's Supper. Unfortunately, that word became corrupted in what it means, and so therefore we don't use it. But if you think about it in that connection, that when you and I come and we take the loaf and we take the cup, we are, in a sense, pledging our loyalty to the Lord Jesus. We are saying, you are my Lord. And we express that to everyone gathered here. And we express it to the unseen world that looks down upon us. And we express it, in a sense, to the world out there, even though they're not in here looking. That by taking that loaf and taking that cup, we're pledging our loyalty to the Lord Jesus. So you can see how that word initially would have had a good meaning to it. Unfortunately, as I said, it had been corrupted. And then David does a couple of remarkable things. Uh, One there's given a bit more attention to than the other, and that's the taking of the city of Jebus, which uh, became Jerusalem, where the Jebusites were. And he took that castle of Zion, which is the city of David, which it became referred to more and more. So that now um, the nation of Israel was united because of that city. There was now a capital city that united them then and still unites them to this day. To the Jew, by and large, there's nothing like that city. And if you talk about going up, there's only one place they think of going up to. And that's going up to Jerusalem. I wish I knew the term for it, the, the uh, aliyah, which is the, you know, the migration back to Israel, which is a word that basically means to go up. And uh, there they were united to him as a king, and there they had something else that united them, and that was that city of Jerusalem, which is quite different for us now, isn't it? It's difficult sometimes to separate when you live in a country like the United States of America. And if you have a sense of patriotism, which is, I feel, a good thing. Um, But to realize that our allegiance now is not to a city in that sense. It's not to a country, and it's not to a political party. It's to the risen Christ and to a different place because we are now citizens of a different place, aren't we? Our citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't mean we should be bad citizens down here or can't fulfill certain duties, but it means that unlike them, they were united for a physical place on planet Earth. Not now true, is it? Because now as Christians, we're united to the Lord Jesus and our allegiance is to Him, not some specific city in the world or on this planet. And so they were drawn to the Lord's in his, in his rejection, uh, to the Lord's anointed in his rejection. They were loyal to him when it was unpopular. And they stood and they fought for him, even at great cost, which is what you begin to read about in the following passage, beginning in verse 10, with those names that Buck mentioned, <laughs> that some of them could be difficult to uh, pronounce. But you begin to read about those who came when it wasn't popular and risked their own lives, oftentimes, 
and overcame obstacles to be loyal to him even in the time of his rejection. And one day, some of those were, became a part of his cabinet and a part of his government as he ruled. So may the Lord uh, help us to gather these thoughts together to think about our time here following the rejected one, rejected by the world, owned by us, doing that which is not necessarily popular, but which is pleasing to him individually and collectively as a group of God's people. One day, that song goes on as you're well familiar, the crowning day is coming by and by. (laughs) And we look forward to that, don't we? Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. The song is still true, though written many years ago. By the many still rejected, by the world disowned, neglected, except by the few, he is enthroned. And so today we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Our hearts have been drawn to him. He was not only willing to go down into the place of death for us, but he did go to the place of death for us even the death of the cross. And we're thankful that he rose again, triumphant, victorious, soon returning. And one day that crowning day will come. And Lord, we'll certainly be glad then that we were on the right side. We'll certainly be glad then that we stood for him in the time of his rejection. We thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your great love for us. Help the assembly here. We navigate difficult waters in the world in which we live. And they need wisdom from you and how to be effective and how to maintain your testimony here on planet Earth. Help them, we pray. We give you thanks again in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.